Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, we spend some time with Johanna van Warmelo and Denise Reitz, the former who starts a new position as a nurse in a concentration camp at Irene outside Pretoria, and the latter who has just convinced his German fellow travellers that an invasion into the Cape is feasible. It's mid-May 1901. President Steyn of the Free State and his Transvaal colleagues have just had a disagreement about the possibility of a ceasefire. But that has not stopped General Louis Boerta, who is in the eastern Transvaal, sending a note to British Army Commander Lord Kitchener, asking for permission to send an emissary to the Netherlands. Boerta wants to ask President Paul Kruger's permission to embark on peace talks, as he's growing more certain that the Boers can't defeat the British in South Africa. The Free State leadership are more intransigent and prefer to fight to the death, The stage is set for more confrontations between the supposed allies, but as they grind their teeth, in Pretoria, Johanna van Warmelo is now determined to assist her Boer sisters and their children who are squeezed into a nearby concentration camp. They are beginning to die in large numbers, and with the temperature dropping, it bodes ill for the coming winter. Remember, in episode 83, I explained how Johanna and her mother were working as secret agents for the Boers from their strategic base at Sunnyside Farm on the outskirts of Pretoria. The British did not believe they were involved in spying, but that's exactly what they were doing. We also heard how Johanna was keeping three separate diaries. One, her open diary, the second, her secret love diary, and the third, her top-secret war diary. Historian Jackie Grobler published a book in 2007 called The War Diary of Johanna Brandt, which combined all three. Brandt was her married name. She was still a van Warmelo during the war, and in May 1901 arrived at our Rini concentration camp, having volunteered as a nurse. Her initial job was to walk around the huge camp looking for sick, poor women and children, and then bringing these to the attention of the camp doctor. There were six Boer nurses in a camp of 5,000 and by early May at least three people were dying a day. Johanna was living in one of the small tents, sharing this with another nurse, a Miss Salias. She had gone from her large colonial house outside Pretoria to an icy tent. Supper consisted of cold roast beef, peach pickle, bread and stormyachas with jam, tea and coffee. Stormyachas are what we now call fetkuk in South Africa, fat cakes. These are lumps of dough fried in oil until they are golden brown and often filled with minced meat. They remain a staple quick meal for both white and black South Africans today. But back in 1901, Johanna is quick to sum up her fellow workers. She decides that Dr. Green is a good man, but the man she calls her boss or boss is another matter. I don't care about my boss, Dr. Hamilton. We have dubbed him one in six, she writes. Her job is to inspect 150 tents a day. When at least every other tent has one or more patients, you can imagine what a lot I have to do. The serious cases are reported to the doctor, but in little ailments I have to prescribe for myself. Her notebook fills up with an array of illnesses. Fearful and dreadful to look upon, she says. There is a small dispensary in the camp where some Boer women and children line up for hours waiting for their medicines. Johanna dispenses milk, sago, maizena, arrowroot, castor oil, liniment and various cough mixtures, amongst other medicines. 
The tents are thin and draughty, she writes, and few people have bedsteads and some don't have mattresses and sleep on the bare ground. Consequently, they suffer more from the cold than anything else. And so the numbers of sick and dying grow as the influenza, colds and croup increase along with those with dysentery and diarrhoea. The death rate is beginning to decimate the population. I heard today of a woman who has lost ten children out of twelve. It is too terrible. Oh, our little ones are suffering untold agonies, and yet they are so patient, and look at one with eyes full of suffering like some animal in pain. It breaks one's heart, and one is so helpless. The story of refugees the world over. What Johanna knows is that despite the atrocious conditions, Irene Camp is actually one of the better facilities which are now dotted across the Transvaal, Free State and Natal. In Potrestrum, Vereniging and Folkschrist, for example, the camps have no dispensary and the inmates are dying there in even larger numbers. In Irene, there is no soap, nor are there any candles, so the mothers must tend their sick children in pitch dark as the wind roars and the winter closes in. Some of the elderly have been assaulted by vengeful civilians before being brought to the camp. Johanna finds what she calls an old man of over 60, who was surrounded at his homestead in the Sotpansberg by a local black population. He was beaten with knob caddies, a weapon that is a large stick with a knob at the top, and has many broken bones. He got a blow on one ear, and blood ran out at the other. It is marvellous that he still lives, but he is a wreck and will never be himself again, she writes. Across the countryside, old grudges are being settled, particularly in the most isolated farming areas. But on May 15th, the inmates of the camp are awoken with the sounds of battle coming from the railway line towards Johannesburg. I heard a distant rumbling of cannon early this morning, but suddenly... Between 10 and 11, several shots were fired in rapid succession quite close by. Smoke was seen rising from the hills. The train that had just left the station for Johannesburg came back, and the cattle were hastily driven into the camp. The incursions by the commandos continued to plague the British throughout their lines of supply, and the great drives which had been designed to mop up the remaining Boer fighters were only partly successful. Lord Kitchener had begun to build his blockhouses across the country, as he tried to stop these guerrilla attacks. On May 20th, Johanna van Warmelo and Miss Silius go for a walk and start at the cemetery. We first went to the graveyard and looked at hundreds and hundreds of little graves. I wonder how many there are. They seem to be nearly all children, she writes wistfully. Also wondering is Emily Hobhouse, who is in England trying to convince the British authorities to take urgent action about these concentration camps. The patience of the military, however, has run out. So many of their comrades died in the battles before the fall of Pretoria that there is little sympathy, at least at first. Death is stalking these camps. There has been a visitor at my camp tonight, Joanna writes. The angel of death. On my rounds this morning, I found one of my patients, a boy of twelve, looking very bad. He was moved to the men's ward, but died a short while later. The worst of it is that the poor boy has not a single relative here, Johanna writes. He was with his father in the field some weeks ago, looking after cattle, 
and there was a fight somewhere near him, and they ran to get away, but they were captured, his father and grandfather. The two men were shipped off to Bombay in India. The boy was left in Irene camp. So he died alone, as his mother was in Petersburg. His name was Khat Pasadenot, and he joined the lengthy list of women and children dying in the camps. The official record states that on the 20th of May 1901, a 12-year-old called Khat P. Besaidenot, who was originally from Petersburg, died of malaria at Irene Camp. A sad story about a sad time, and that sadness would become a flood through the terrible year of 1901. And now, far to the west, somewhere in the vicinity of Hartz River, Denis Reitz and his four German friends were holed up, having been left behind by the commander under the leadership of Meyer. General Kurs de la Rey had ordered that the Boers return to their homes for the meantime, as the cold weather drew in and the movement around the felt became more difficult. But Reitz was so isolated, along with his colleagues, that he had decided to take matters into his own hands. Remember, last week I explained how Reitz had convinced his fellow travellers that instead of heading back to the north, they should try to enter the Cape Colony. After I had explained my views, he writes in his book, Commander, and had pictured the Cape to them as a land of beer for the taking at every wayside inn, they became eager converts, and we agreed to start without delay. As he explains, the four Germans were a mixture. The eldest, Hermann Haas, was a man of about 45 and looks the typical sausage-eater of the English comic papers. But, as I found out, a kindly, good-natured gentleman, a Johannesburg merchant, who had been in the field from the beginning, he was the last man one would have suspected of a liking for war, as his talk was all of his wife and family and the joys of home life. Next was a completely different man called W. Kluver, who was highly educated. A clever, cynical Berlin student who told me many interesting things of life in the old world. The third man was Polacek, also a Berlin student who had come to fight for the Boers based on his ideology. As on a crusade, describes Reitz, he told me his initial ardour had long since evaporated, but he liked the life of adventure and so had remained a pleasant, cheerful fellow whom I grew to like very much. Last was a farmhand named Visa, who was totally unlike the two Berlin students. A clumsy, slow-witted rustic, but brave enough, as Reitz puts it. Little did he know that his future travels would be short with Visa and Kluver, while Haas and Polacek would remain at his side for some time to come. Our preparations for going to the Cape were quickly made. We slaughtered a stray sheep and cut the meat into strips for drying in the wind as we had no salt, and we ground the quantity of maize into meal in a small coffee mill that Haas carried on his saddle tree. The next morning they started out on their quest for the Cape Colony in a Don Quixote-style mission, the five far away from any support, and determined to finish this war in their own individual ways. Day one of their mission did not end well. They bumped into one of Delaray's men, who'd also been stranded in the rear of the British column, which had been chasing Mayer and General Delaray. This man had been lurking around the area for some time and spotted a black man talking to the British from where he'd been hiding, stripping millicops. The man suggested they head to the African village nearby, where this spy lived, and capture him after dark. Accordingly, about nine o'clock that night, 
we started on foot for the kraal, going quietly so as not to frighten our quarry. But when they arrived, the village headman and his followers denied knowledge of any spying, which infuriated the man Rates calls their guide. Our guide cut matters short by seizing the Induna by the throat, threatening to shoot him. On being thus roughly handled, he rested himself free and shouted loudly, Help! Help! The Boers are killing me! The two Boers and four Germans were immediately surrounded by forty men, most brandishing spears and knobkiddies. Things were not going well. They began leaping and dancing about us, uttering fierce yells and menaces, while some tore thatch from the huts, lit it at a fire and held it aloft instead of torches. From inside the homes came the shouts of the women urging the men to kill these six white men who had invaded their village. Things began to look unpleasant, reports Rates, in surely what must have been a dry tone. We could have opened fire, but the space inside the stockade was cramped and they were far superior in numbers. Moreover, all through the war, the Boers had observed an unwritten law that it was a white man's quarrel and that the native tribes were to be left alone. So the six slowly backed up through the gateway of the stockade and retreated. They made their way back to their camping place a few kilometres away, annoyed at the poor figure they had cut. To add to our humiliation, at dawn the next morning we saw a native boldly riding from the stut, and when we sent a few shots after him, he waved a defiant arm and disappeared over the rise. He was on his way to let the British know that a small band of Boers was wandering about the felt. Having thoroughly bungled the affair, writes an angry rates, the Larais man then took his leave of us and we continued on our way. The incident is an example of how black South Africans were caught in the middle of the war and many were taking sides. There were those who supported the Boers and those who supported the British. It wasn't always a simple matter of saying the entire clan or tribe in a region would support one or the other. Sometimes people would make decisions based on the immediate threat of violence or on financial reward. This is true of all guerrilla wars. Rates and his German colleagues swung into their saddles and rode off in the opposite direction, trying to make it south to reach the Cape border, which was still a few weeks' ride away. But they were unable to ride across the flat felt as the crow flies. We found the countryside alive with British troops moving in all directions, and we calculated that we saw 25,000 of them before we got clear. It was plain from the way in which they swept forward on an enormous front that they were conducting another of their drives. The five rode on, spotting no other Boers at all in this region. The drives had worked to some extent in clearing the plains of commandos. However, it also meant frustration for the British, because Delaray and his men simply disappeared, meaning they did not have the pleasure of arresting and imprisoning the few thousands still fighting in the west of the Transvaal. Clearly, General Delaray was resorting to his usual tactics of avoiding these huge concentrations of troops by scattering his men until the blow was spent, remarks Rates. Finally, this little band reached the Vaal River, the border between the Transvaal and the Free State. But more about what happens to this intrepid party when we pick up the story next week.
A quick thank you to listeners, and particularly Thomas in Florida in the USA, who very kindly has donated enough to our project to pay for a significant portion of the SoundCloud hosting costs for the next year. I really am thankful to you, Thomas. It came out of the blue. What a beautiful surprise. And by the way, keep watching Super Rugby. It's a great spectacle. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes if you can and head on to the website at abwarpodcast.com for our photos and maps. Every week I'm trying to scan and load images there and we'll be doing so this week again. Until we meet once more, goodbye. En zonder gedaan langs die moeier vierste waal, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O, breng mij terug naar die Oud-Transvaal, daar waar mijn Sarie woont. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen.